Get your Bibles open to uh, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I shared with you last week that Jesus was more comfortable in the marketplace than he was in the monastery. And I hope that hit you hard. Because most of us think of Jesus as kind of an ethereal, heads in the heavens kind of a character that walked around completely out of touch with what everybody was going through in life, out of touch with trying to go out and work a job and work hard and come home tired and all those things. But I mean, you know, Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, and he was familiar with the marketplace. He spent a lot of time in the marketplace. He did most of his miracles in the marketplace, and Jesus loves people. And so Jesus goes where there are people. And I remember one time in our Roar School, we had some awesome young people who asked an honest question, and it was coming from such pure hearts. I was teaching the biblical worldview class and challenging everybody in the class to make the biggest impact possible with their lives. And um, one of our sweet young ladies raised her hand and said, Pastor, is it okay if we just spend the rest of our lives sitting at the feet of Jesus and, sit, sit, and sitting in the presence of Jesus? How I mean, you know that's a really great question? And I, I gave her what I believe is a biblical answer. Absolutely not. You're going to be sitting at the feet of Jesus forever when he returns, not literally sitting, although that might happen too. But how many of you know there's a lost world waiting for us to impact them? And we can't hide in a closet, even if it's a prayer closet. And I just want to say, while the prayer closet's fundamental and foundational, you're not going to be of any good if you don't spend time with Jesus every day. Amen? The call is more than just to spend time in private with Jesus. The call is to take Jesus where there's lost and hurting people. And, uh, and that's the hard, that's hard part. This is the easy part, singing and celebrating and being with believers. But how many of you know Monday comes and that's the hard part? And I just want to tell you, Jesus wasn't just up on a mountain somewhere hanging out with his father, although he did that. But Jesus came down from the mountain and engaged in culture. And he engaged with the Pharisees and he, he fought some battles. And how many of you know Jesus was out and he did many of this, much of this while he was uh, working with his hands and being a carpenter and making things and serving in his, in his own family business. Are you with me? So Jesus is not the monastery type. In fact, I thought this was interesting. The word monk actually is derived from a Greek word that means a solitary person. The whole idea, this is based on a false idea of, of spirituality that somehow if you're most spiritual, you won't go out and work a real job. You'll actually hide away in a monastery somewhere and pray all day long or read your Bible all day long and be a solitary person. But how many know solitary people don't impact anybody? They, they don't touch anybody. They don't, they don't meet any needs. Uh, they, they just are solitary people. Can I just tell you, Jesus was a solitary person early in the morning and late at night. He spent time with God. But in between early in the morning and late at night, he was not a solitary person. He was engaged with people everywhere and loving people and bringing hope and bringing life wherever he went. And, uh, and so he's not, Jesus is not a monk-type person. He's really more like a small business owner. And I'm trying to drive that home. When we look today in, in Luke chapter 19, we see that Jesus loved to tell parables. He, and I want you to notice the nature of the parables that he told. He told parables, for instance, about uh, sowing seed. I mean, you know, that's an agriculture parable. He, he, he told parables about building houses on the rock. We sang about that this morning. I mean, you know, that's, a, that, that's an architectural and a construction parable. 
He talked about making wise investments with your money. That's a banking parable and an investment parable. He talked about getting a return on his investment, uh, which is a good financial principle. In other words, look at the parables Jesus told, and you won't find any of them being super spiritual or things that the average person can't relate to. He told parables about stuff that's part of our world. And he used those parables to teach important principles about how we're supposed to live. And so here's what I'm trying to do, and I hope every one of you that's going to wake up tomorrow morning, if you have to, and go off to work, I hope you're being envisioned that your work matters and you matter, and what takes place there is is holy to God. And when you see it through those eyes, it changes everything about whether you like work or not. Because you might not like the task that you're doing right now, but you should love the people that are around you, and you should care about bringing the kingdom into that place. In fact, that's when it gets to be really, really exciting. And so take a look, Luke 19. We're introduced here first of all, and I'm not going to preach on Zacchaeus this morning, but I want you to look at how verse, uh, verse 1 starts. It says Jesus is entering Jericho, and, and look at what it says next. He made his way through the town. How do you know when he entered the city, he made his way through the town? What's happening through the town? That's, where, that's the hubbub. That's the marketplace of activity. Jesus went right down Main Street. He went right where the action was happening. He didn't go in some obscure path. He, he walked right through the town, which is what I've been teaching you about getting in the heart of the city. And he ran into this man, Zacchaeus, who was a, the chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, the chief tax collector, a Roman collaborator, and he was greatly hated by every Jew. And I want you to see what Jesus did. Remember, I encouraged you a couple weeks ago to dedicate your house as a ministry center and to lay hands on your kitchen table and to dedicate it as a pulpit. Didn't I do that? Jesus sees Zacchaeus in a tree. He calls him by name, and Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. (laughs) This is the only time in the Bible where Jesus invites himself to somebody's house. So it's okay to say, hey, we really need to get together. What are you cooking for dinner? All right? Uh, That's okay. It's biblical. So Jesus says to Zacchaeus, hey, I'm coming over to your house. And I want you to see this. He goes into the home of a notorious sinner. That's what the NLT calls him, a notorious sinner. All the religious people got ticked off. What's he doing going to his house? How come he says, he's like, doesn't he know who that guy is? Of course he knew who that guy was. But I want you to see, where did the ministry happen? In the home of a notorious sinner. Around the table. They were eating food together. Do you know how disarming this is? When you're willing to go on somebody else's turf and sit down and have a meal with them and listen to their heart. And, and again, can I just say this? You know, people often talk about how Jesus was a friend of sinners, but they use it to, many times, to defend their carnal lifestyle. Jesus was always a friend of sinners, but he influenced the sinners. The sinners didn't influence him. And he never partook in their wickedness or in the carnality of their lifestyle. He just simply identified with them in a non-judgmental way, and he loved them. And so I encourage you, be a friend of sinners. Get in their world. Love them. Hear their hearts. Meet their needs. Don't mimic their behaviors, or then you're back in the ditch with them. But please love them and care for them and, and go eat dinner with them. And I want you to notice over that dinner table, a radical transformation took place. And we know it was radical because it involved money. How do you know a man or woman really gets truly saved? 
They stop worshiping their wallet or their pocketbook or their investment portfolio, and they start using what God has blessed them with to bless other people. It's what, that's why, listen to me, that's why I, I never get ashamed about talking about discipleship, uh, t- talking about tithing as a discipleship issue. Because if the Lord never conquers your checkbook, he hasn't really conquered you. And so I, I never, ever want to be ashamed of talking about resources and how we use our resources because it is, a, it is a matter of fact that your checkbook is the truest indicator of where your passions lie. And Jesus should be at the top of your passions and at the top of your checkbook. And Jesus shares this beautiful mission, so simple, so profound, in verse 10 of Luke chapter 19. Here's Jesus' mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Isn't that beautiful? If I ask you this, is the word seek an active or passive word? What is it? It's an active word. What's Jesus doing right now? He's pursuing lost, hurting people. And what's his goal? To condemn them? No, to save them. Jesus is always seeking and he's always saving. Can I tell you something? That's, that's our mission as well as followers of Jesus Christ. Seek hurting people, broken people, lost people, and then love them to life and bring them home. And I love that metaphor, bring them home, welcome home. Everybody needs a place to call home. Father's house is home. And so let's go after people that are hurting and lost and help them find their way home. That's what Jesus did. Now, here's where we want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. It's in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It says this, Jesus begins to tell another parable. But the point of the story is to correct their misconceptions about the nature of the kingdom of God. Remember, that word kingdom of God is so important. Jesus preached on the kingdom many, many times through the Gospels. This is a kingdom church, so you have to understand that concept, all right? We are part of the kingdom of God. But it is a concept that is greatly uh, misunderstood even today. But look at what Jesus says in verse 11. The crowd was listening, (coughs) excuse me, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. So here's the backdrop of the reason for this parable, to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Look at verse 12. I'm going to just read the whole parable, and then we'll go back and comment on it. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left... He called together 10 of his servants, and he divided among them 10 pounds of silver. Let me just add, this one is different than the, the, the other parable with the resources where Jesus gave out differing amounts. Here, they took the 10 and divided it equally among them, all right? Uh, or at least he says here that he took the 10... Uh, let me get back up here. He called 10 of his servants, divided among them 10 pounds of silver. Uh, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. Verse 14, but his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. And after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. Circle that word because that word to me sounds like a marketplace word. Does that sound like a marketplace word to you? And I want you to know the Bible's not against making profit. In fact, making profit is a godly thing. They made profits. It says, the first servant reported, Master, I invested the money and made 10 times the original amount. So this servant took what he was given and multiplied it by 10. Well done, the king exclaimed. You're a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. 
So you're going to be governor of 10 cities. Oh, look at Jesus. Now he's talking about politics. <laughs> I thought I was the only one to get a bad rap about talking about politics. But Jesus just said, hey, for your reward, I'm going to make you governor of 10 cities. Now, we wouldn't think that's much of, an award, or of a reward to be given the responsibility to govern over 10 cities. But obviously, Jesus thinks differently than us because Jesus is about impacting the marketplace. So he's already telling his wise investors, great job, you're killing it. And then he's saying, because you killed it, I'm going to make you a governor over 10 cities. We just talked about the business world and the marketplace, and we talked about government and politics right here in this parable. And Jesus is sharing it in a positive light, not a negative light. He didn't say, great job, I'm going to make sure you never have to run for office again. Uh, he didn't treat government like it was a curse. He treated government and leadership like it was important. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, he said. You're going to be governor of five cities. There it is again. Verse 20, but the third servant brought back only the original amount of money. And he said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with. In other words, because you're a shrewd businessman. Being a shrewd businessman for the glory of God and someone who's full of the love of Christ and wise at what you do is something Jesus honors and something we should honor. He said, you, you, you take what isn't yours and you harvest crops you didn't plant. In other words, you're making other people's money work for you. Look what he said. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops that I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit the money at least in the bank and get some piddly interest on it? How many of you know at least putting it in the bank, you get something back, even though that's not the greatest return on your money, but he could have got something back by putting it in the local bank. But master, they said, he already, oh, I'm sorry, then turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered a socialist neo-Marxist decree. No, that's not what he, that's not what he said. Take the money from the servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given to them. But from those who do nothing, from those who do nothing, from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. As for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. I mean, you know, that's a strong word of judgment at the end of this parable. And there's going to be judgment at the end of the age when Christ returns. How many of you know we're living in this season of this parable right here? And I want to highlight a couple misconceptions that Jesus wanted to address. In fact, in, in chapter 18, Luke chapter 18... Jesus tells the disciples the details of what awaits them in Jerusalem. He says in verse 31, taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. And here's what he tells them. Jesus speaking, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be treated shamefully. I'm going to be spit upon. They're going to flog me. They're going to whip me. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. How many of you understood that? Okay, but look at the disciples don't. But they didn't understand any of it. 
The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. How many of you know our, our preconceived ideas create blind spots, and they make us oblivious sometimes of what God's trying to do? In other words, you can have a stronghold in your mind of something that you believe that's not accurate and not biblical, and it will actually blind you from the purposes of God. Let me, let me give you an example of how this worked out. First of all, I mean, you know, they were expecting a, a political kingdom, and if you're expecting a political kingdom, your leader cannot be crucified. You can't have a kingdom with a dead king. So they completely missed it. But here's where the church misses it even today. They were expecting the king's coming now. And I've been around on planet Earth for a while. Uh, I was born in the early 60s. So I was alive. How many of you were around with Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth? The rapture, everybody's going to be sucked up. It's going to come anytime, probably tomorrow. Uh, and so don't get involved in anything that has a long-term perspective because you're not going to be here. In fact, D.O. Moody once said this, don't bother polishing the silver on a sinking ship the sinking ship being planet Earth. Uh, don't bother uh, polishing the rails uh, on a sinking ship. Um, in other words, just get people saved, and then we're going to wait for the return of the king, and we'll all go to heaven. How many of you know since the 1960s, uh, there's been a lot of years that have passed. I just had my 60th birthday. Please hear what I'm saying here. We don't know when Christ is going to return. We do know he's going to return. But here's what he has not called us to do, to sit passively waiting. That's nowhere in the Gospels. And there's a bunch of people that did stupid things. They ran, they ran up their credit cards because they weren't going to be around to have to pay for anything that they ran up on their credit card. I'm serious. People selling their homes. People did all kinds of crazy stuff because Christ was going to come any day. And again, I'm not minimizing the second coming. I hope he does come in our lifetime. Anybody with me on that? I'd be excited to welcome Christ. But, it, but here's the point. If you're, if you're awaiting his return, is greeted by you sitting on a bench somewhere, staring at the clouds, you've completely misunderstood the gospel. This parable said, you need to be investing my stuff until I return. Or occupy, in one translation, occupy until I come. So, so here's my point. A bunch of the church got it completely wrong. And here's, here's what's scary. If you get certain things wrong, you waste your life. Think about it. If you have been sitting around for 60 years waiting... So you're not going to start that Christian school. You're, you're not going to start that Christian business. You're, you're not going to go reach those unreached people. Uh, you're not going to try to run for office and change government because it's all evil and it's all going to hell and Jesus is going to come tomorrow. Then you just wasted your life. You, you just took your talent and you buried it because you were afraid of losing it. You know why most of you are here right now? Because we weren't afraid to keep being the church. That's why you're all here. We're the only thing open. That's why you're all here. Fear is a terrible thing. And fear will rob you of so many opportunities. And fear will blind you of what God's trying to do even now. It was one of the great saints. I forget which one. But he said, what would you, what would you be doing if Jesus is coming tomorrow? He said, I'd plant a tree today. In other words, if you know Jesus is coming tomorrow, it doesn't stop you from interacting and being a, making a difference in the place where you live right now. 
In fact, we should be living as if he's coming tomorrow, but planning as if he's not. Can I just say something? We're coming into a season, I believe, in America where we're going to have some choices to make. If we don't see the public arena reformed and truth brought back in, we're going to have to create parallel ministries and parallel uh, uh, stuff, all right? In other words, there's going to be people, Christians, starting banks. Because if, if this piece of legislation goes through that I just talked about, you will be a bigot if you believe in biblical marriage. And bigots don't get to do business with big banking industries. Their services are not available to you. This is already happening in America. So how are you going to do business if you can't have a bank? If your credit card's canceled? So you know what, you know what wise people do? They create parallel universes. What are we going to do if, if, this is not the case now, we have many great people serving in our public schools. My son goes to public school. I'm not anti-public school, but hear me. If we don't see Reformation and if we get Washington, D.C. telling us what we're going to be teaching in our schools, we're either going to take it back over through school boards and places like that, or we're going to have to create parallel opportunities to train our kids. I get excited looking out here because when I think of the potential and the capital in this room and the relational skill in this room for people to come together in the marketplace and to dominate. When I say dominate, I don't mean it in some ungodly way. I mean go out and make a profit for the glory of God and create jobs and create blessing, create resources. Um, None of this happens. None of this happens if we're sitting on the bench staring at the sky. And so Jesus told them, it's not happening now. At least he was trying to tell them that. But they had a theology of waiting. And can I just tell you, some people with this theology are very fatalistic. They say things like this, Pastor, everything's going to go from bad to worse. There's nothing I can do about it. Is that a biblical comment? Everything's going to go from bad to worse, and there's nothing you can do about it? That sounds very fatalistic to me. It sounds like you just threw, threw in the towel. That is not the kingdom of God. The Bible says the kingdom of God is ever increasing and advancing. I'm a part of that kingdom. But there are people that have a faith, you know, why bother going to the nations? Why bother leading anybody to the Lord? Why bother making disciples? Why bother, why bother, why bother? Everything is going to go to hell anyway. No, it's not. We have a victorious king coming back, and we have a victorious church on planet earth, and we're going to win all the way to the end. Secondly, it deals with a futuristic kind of mentality that this world is of less importance than the next world. And we need to focus on spiritual things that are truly important. How many of you have ever encountered that kind of thinking? Hey, well, don't worry about, you know, this or that or starting this business or doing that. Let's just get people saved because really that's all that matters is that people go to heaven. Well, last time I checked, Christ is not burning up the planet. Uh, he is coming to redeem and restore the planet. What's going on right here and now is when it's done to the glory of God is holy and righteous and awesome. And we're not going somewhere. We're actually coming back right here where Jesus is going to reign on planet earth uh, on a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. This is, this is our home right here. So don't get into this dualistic stuff where spiritual things are more important than non-spiritual things. Listen, everything is spiritual because all of life is sacred. What is it that you do or that I do that's not holy when it's done unto the Lord? Courtney, I'm looking at you, super mom over there raising these young babies. Come on. You're not going to do something. Uh, 
You're not going to do something important in the next world. What you're doing right now is awesome and powerful and holy. You're raising up a next generation of God, awesome, world-changing people, and that's holy to the Lord. This is my point. Why do we not care about the environment in which we have to live here or the soil with which we have to plant and deal with? I'm talking about what happens in our culture. If what happens in our culture impacts every single one of us in this room, you would have to be a glutton for punishment to not care about what's going on in Washington or what's happening in our economy. Does anybody love inflation? Do you love eating chicken for Thanksgiving instead of turkey? Do you like what you're putting, paying to put into gas that you don't have to spend on other things? Do you like this misery? I hope you hate it as much as I do and that you'll do something about it because it's not like this world doesn't matter. This is where we live every day. And if you're fatalistic and you're futuristic, I guarantee you, you're going to live a life of passivity. I hate that word. Passivity. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Jesus, in this parable, masterfully unites the present and future aspects of the kingdom into one seamless and continuous life. We see that the master's servants have a very important work to do until he comes. Now, I want you to see what's happening here. While the master is away, he's expecting us to be actively engaged in his business. Notice the activity of the Savior. It says, as a nobleman, a picture of Christ, was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king. That happened at his ascension. And then he's going to return. How many of you know Jesus is actively at work even now seeking and saving the lost? He's, he's on assignment. How many you know the Bible said God is working right now? God is moving. We sing that song on Sunday, do we not? Even if I can't see it, it doesn't mean he's not working. Even if I can't feel it, it doesn't mean he's not working. He's working. He's working. He's working. He's always working. He's an active God. He's not asleep taking a nap right now in heaven. And I want you to notice the active role of the disciples while he's away. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of, of silver. So I want you to see this. This, this parable is different than the other one where he gave out specific differing amounts. This one, he divides it all up equally among all of us. That means we've all been given a gift by the grace of God, and he expects us to do something with it. And this is why God's not a communist. If I walked around this room this morning and gave everybody a $100 bill and said, come back and see me in six months and tell me what you did with it, I would get 500 different answers. Right? Because... People would do different things and steward things differently. Some people would go out today and it'd be, it would be gone before uh, you went to bed tonight because you'd burn a hole in your pocket. Some people would look for the long term and they invested. Some would be more risky. Some would be more aggressive. Some would be more cautious. But I guarantee you, everybody, if you got the same amount handed to you and you're, and you're going to be an investor of that, a steward of that, we would all handle it differently because we're all different people. And that's what this parable shows. They all handled it differently. There was an investment of capital in each of the servants. And how many know the investment of capital that Christ has put in us, his life, his spirit, his gifts, he's expecting a return on the investment. Can I just say, Jesus is a shrewd investor. He is expecting a return on his investment in you and in me. I hope that, that, that like, wake up call it. You're going to stand before him someday. You will give an account of the capital invested in you. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? 
I don't mean in a scary kind of way because we're sons and daughters. If you love the Lord and you're part of his family, this should not cause you fear, but it should sober you up to ask the question, what kind of life am I living in light of his return? Am I stewarding the capital investment he's placed inside of me because he's expecting a return on the investment? Or am I fearfully shrinking back and doing nothing with what God has placed in me? Let's take a look at the direct commandment. I've only got a couple minutes here. Verse 13, invest this for me while I'm gone. That word invest in the new living is translated various ways. Trade, do business, occupy. And this word is, this is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. It's a nice long Greek word. I won't try to pronounce it, but the root word is pragma. Any of you English folks out there, when you think of the, the, the root pragma, uh, what comes to your mind? How about this? Pragmatic. What does it mean to be pragmatic? It means you look for what is the best solution and what works, what is practical, what was the best way to solve this. You're think, if you're pragmatic, you're, you're a problem solver and you try to figure out what's the easiest and best way to solve this problem. Jesus is saying, I want you to be pragmatic I want you to make the biggest impact for me and my kingdom as possible. I want you to leverage every gift. I want you to maximize every opportunity. I want you to be creative, active, industrious, energetic with the capital that he has placed inside of each one of us. Wow. So we should be found with our hand to the plow when he returns. We should be found full of hope and full of joy. We should be found loving people. Amen. We should be found stepping out in faith, not shrinking back and playing it safe. We should be found in the marketplace and not in the prayer closet. Pastor, are you saying we shouldn't pray? No, I'm saying you already prayed and now you're out in the marketplace. Please hear me. We should be found where the action is because Jesus is seeking and saving lost people. Where do you find lost people? At church? No, I hope not. You find lost people in the marketplace. That's where Jesus is, is in the marketplace. How many know this word occupy? There was also a military term. It's talking about occupying territory. Have you all figured out? I wish it wasn't this way, but, it, but life is this way. You just get done overcoming a challenge, and you feel so good. Isn't it great? You have a victory. And then there's three more challenges that show up the next week. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I found that it usually works in threes, like... Your washer doesn't just go out. Your tire on your car blows up. And, you know, one of the kids broke, broke something in the house or whatever. It's always like someone's throwing up in the bathroom, you know, whatever. There's always threes. And you just get done with the one kid throwing up. Oh, they shared it with the next kid. And that kid's puking the next week. And moms, anybody know what I'm talking about? The moms are here. And you're, you're like, oh, I have nothing to do tomorrow. I'm going to get a good night's sleep. Oh, no, you're not. You got one that's teething. And you're up all night long with the little one teething. And life is just this way. Because we're not home yet. We're in occupied territory. But Jesus has parachuted this secret weapon in called the church. And we're setting up a beachhead in enemy territory. And we're not sitting here hiding, hoping nobody finds us. We're actually going out engaging the enemy around us because Christ has already won the victory. Our job is to enforce the victory. But have you figured out this doesn't come easy? Nothing of worth comes easy. 
Because the nature of the game is we're in a fight. We're in a war. That's why we need each other. Have you ever been tired and your sword's hanging and you can't lift up your shield and you're not sure if you can go on? What do you need? You need a family. You need people that will stand and lift your arm and hold it up and help you fight. And when you need to lay down because you are flat out exhausted, you got people to come around you and encourage you and help lift your shield when you can't lift it anymore. We need each other. We are in a fight. And the fight will intensify until Jesus comes. It doesn't mean we shrink back and play it safe. Can I just tell you, so many churches are just playing it safe. They're waving the be nice flag while all of our liberties are being stripped from us. You know, I just got to say one more thing. It deeply disturbs me that even on this disrespect for marriage bill, there are Christian universities that are supporting this as an effort of, you know, I don't know, kindness, we're going to work together. Let me just tell you something. You know the first institutions to go? Christian colleges. It is the height of stupidity to try to embrace and kiss your enemy when they're getting ready to cut your head off. And we have Christian universities that are folding up like a dirty napkin because we think that if we just try to get along and go along, it will work out. Please hear me. I've been preaching this for a long time. That's not the way life works. You have to punch the bully back. You have to stand up for what matters. You, you can't kick the can down the road to the next generation. There will not be another generation. You have to fight for things now. And, uh, and that's what we got to do. That's what we got to do. So I just want to give you a little heads up. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the nature of a call, and embracing what you're doing as a divine call. The week after that, we're going to talk about consecration, and up front here, it's going to get really fun because we're going to create a bunch of fire tunnels. Some of you remember our fire tunnels. Pastors going to be fire in the sanctuary? Oh, yes. yes. But what we want to do is we want to give a chance to respond, to consecrate yourself to where you're called to serve. You know, Brenda, you're, you're always serving loving people. You have a great ministry doing that. It's awesome when you consecrate yourself to God and then say, Lord, do more. Use me more. So we're just going to lay hands up front, and it's going to be crazy. Awesome crazy. And then the last week before we get into Christmas, we're going to do a commissioning time. Some of you are at the, at the uh, Market Share event where we had a commissioning time. We commission missionaries. We commission pastors, and we should. Some of you are maybe called to be a missionary or a pastor, and we want to pray for you. Um, but many of you have a call to business, or you have a call to government, or you have a call to a host of other areas that are out in that community. And we want you to know we value that, and we love that, we value you, and we want to pray over you and ask God's blessing on what you do in the marketplace. That doesn't generally happen at churches. Because churches don't often see you that way. But we see you that way because we believe that's the biblical way to see you. And so we're going to have three weeks of some great ministry coming up where we're going to give you a chance to respond, all right? You all ready for that? And then we're going to drop an atomic bomb in 2023 in the marketplace. The bomb is you. 
the Holy Spirit is the source, but you're the carrier, and you're the bomb that God wants to release in some fresh way. So I really want you in the next few weeks as we're in this holiday season to be asking the question, Lord, how do you want to use me? How do you want to use me? Lord, thanks for this morning. Bless us as we go. Thank you for the season we're in, and thank you for the word of the Lord in our hearts. Make it alive and use us mightily in your mighty name. Amen, amen.